Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. I'm going to open with a burning question. A burning question. Okay. Okay. Were you a Princess Diaries fan? I was. You were? <laughs> Why are you so shocked? <laughs> no offense, Harvard girl, but I really <laughs> I thought it might be beneath you. Uh, you know, why would I think that, you might ask? Well, I don't With know. With the unibrow. Just... Now, I'm wondering where you stood on it, because, of course, your, your go-to favorite, Julie Andrews, was the queen of the kingdom. We don't schlump like this. I, you know, I liked the first one. I thought the second one was stupid. I like them all. I like Hector okay. Elizondo. I like Anne Hathaway. I, I like, like Anne Hathaway. You know, I know a lot of people aren't fans of Anne Hathaway. In fact, there have been articles written about why do people not like Anne Hathaway. But so you heard the news. That there's probably going to be a third Princess Diaries Here's the movie. thing that made me a bit sad. And that is that it was in the works. You know, Gary Marshall had talked to Anne Hathaway. They were working out the plot and the whole premise for the third um third in the in I guess it would be a trilogy right mm-hmm. and then he passed away and so um so they want to do it anyway and and has says she's in and your friend the one you like Julie Andrews says she's in but I think I don't know it's you're talking about 12 years after the last one was done that's a long time to finish a trilogy do you think now she's going to be queen well queen for a day maybe huh I am queen of Genovia. Whoa, whoa. And you are princess. Shut up. Anyway, just, I, I, I don't know why I felt the need, the burning need to ask this burning question of you. I wasn't, I thought you would go either way is what I thought. I was totally amused by it. And, um, you know, Anne Hathaway once filmed a movie scene outside my apartment. And from my vantage point on the third floor window, she seemed like a nice person yeah, interacting with the cast. Not, you know, and, She's, you know, you know, she's one of those people who goes around saying, I don't understand why no one likes me. <laughs> she can definitely sing. I'll give yeah. her that. Maybe they well, could you use go one as a Anne musical. Hathaway. You go Anne Hathaway. And now we have to talk about the sad. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about the sad news this week. This is some really sad news. I was totally caught off guard when I heard that Sam Shepard had passed. I didn't realize he had Luke Eric's disease. Yeah, he had ALS. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I knew that, or at least I think I knew it. I'm not, I might might not have known it, but but we thought we should do a list of six around him in celebration of an amazing life. How's that? Do you want to start us off, Hollister? I will start us off. Okay, but I will also start with the embarrassing news that I had no idea he was a playwright. No. Hollister, that's the very first thing on my list. Oh, I, I, thank God for you, because, you know, with you and plays in Broadway... I, I was confident that I didn't have to go do all this research today to try to pick it up, but I did not know he was, I'm, I swear I didn't know he was a playwright. So I'm going to start off with the fact that Terrence Malick has, you know, was the one who originally discovered Shepard. And he says, he says he's always had a flair for faces and he's been able to see poetry in people who had yet to visualize it for themselves. That's what people said about Terrence Malick, who discovered Sam Shepard as an actor. And so when Malick met him, you know, he was this, this handsome young writer whose genius had already, you know, been out there in a series of, you know, plays that were acclaimed that I never heard of. Um, and so he wouldn't take no for an answer. Shepard kept saying, no, I don't want an act. I'm, I'm a writer. And then finally, he just felt like, okay, I'm going to say yes. So he played the unnamed farmer in Days of Heaven. Um, And it had always been Malick's uh, intention that Days of Heaven 
would be like a song without words. So, so he felt that the way Sam looked was what was going to be so great. And, you know, he was haunted, you know, as the weed fields of Texas, you know, in their perfection and was perfect in his loneliness and was able to show it so well. So he finally said, yes, he rented a Ford Mustang and drove up to the film's Canadian set and began his life as an actor. And, you know, I guess you could say movies were never the same, right? Well, you know, that's what I had at the top of my list, is that Sam Shepard always considered himself a writer first. Yeah. And I find this fact about his life unheard of. By the time he was 30, he had already written 30 produced plays in New York. I mean, it's hard enough to write 30 plays, but 30 produced plays. He won the Pulitzer in 1979 for Buried Child. I'm so embarrassed. He was nominated for two more Pulitzers after that, for True West and Fool for Love, and he was nominated for two Tonys. You know, humble guy. You know, he looks he looks a lot like my father looked at that age, you know, in his younger years. And I remember looking him at him on the screen often thinking, gosh, there's my father, but with huge humility. You know, big difference. <laughs> but uh, an amazing actor also. And maybe when you have that much depth in your soul as a writer then it can show up in your acting. You know, when you when the insides are so very important, it can show up in, in it, you know. Okay, mm-hmm. my favorite movie, I, you're going to be surprised. Can you guess? Do you want to take a little guess as to my favorite movie he was in? I would guess The Right Stuff. It takes a special kind of man to volunteer for a suicide mission, especially when it's on TV. Nope. Oh, wrong. August Os- It's the wrong stuff from you on that moment in time. August Osage County? Nope. Mud? I didn't see Mud. Baby Boom. I loved him in Baby Boom. Okay, now you shock me because I know you're not a huge fan I of Diane Keaton. I hate Diane Keaton, but I loved him. And when she is on the side of the road trying to change a tire after having quit this big high-powered job and moved up to Vermont to find herself, and he pulls up behind her and he gets out and he says, do you need some help? I am a tough cold career woman who has absolutely nothing in common with a veterinarian from Hadleyville. And then he kisses her and leaves. It's one of the great romantic moments on film. And everyone I knew, I was in my 20s then, we all fell madly in love with him in that moment in time. It's my favorite moment, and my favorite movie that he did was Baby Boom. I should have guessed that because you know who wrote Baby Boom? Nancy Myers. Exactly. Yep. So I should have known it. Okay, well, next on my list of favorite things about Sam Shepard, I'm going to put that he actually did the rodeo circuit. He rode Bronx and oh, Bulls, he and he worked on a ranch. Right. I just and love when, that when he about was him. waiting for his turn to go into the ring, he was writing a play. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So I pulled out from my third element is a quote. Here's his quote: "I hate endings. Just detest them. Beginnings are definitely the most exciting. Middles are perplexing, and endings are a disaster. The temptation toward resolution." towards wrapping up the package seems to me a terrible trap. Why not be more honest with the moment? The most authentic endings are the ones which are already revolving towards another beginning. That's genius. That is a fabulous quote, and Sam Shepard has no ending, so I'm just going to toss in my third one. He was also a musician. 
He played the guitar. Oh. He played the drums. Okay, these are not, I don't like your choices. They're just making me feel I, bad. But Wait, what a, kind of musician? He was a drummer for oh, two rock bands in the late 60s and the early 70s. He collaborated with Bob Dylan on writing an 11-minute song on Dylan's album called Brownsville Girl. Of course he did. You know, he was an artist on every level. Yeah. What's captured exactly. on screen is immortal. He'll live on on the big screen, on stage. Yeah, so rest in peace. Rest I wish in I peace. could remember that movie just a little bit better. All I remember about it was that it starred Gregory Peck. He was shot down in the back by a hungry kid trying to make a name for himself. Townspeople wanted to crush their kid down and string him up by the neck. You know, here Sam Shepard was this Pulitzer Prize winning author, and we decided to go into Amazon, which we haven't done in a while. Have you noticed that we haven't gone into Amazon in a while? I have noticed that. Yeah, to review The Last Tycoon, which actually was started for HBO, and then they dumped it, and Amazon picked it up. And you know why HBO dumped it? No, why? They only wanted to do one quote-unquote period piece, so they chose vinyl. Really? Remember that one about the music industry? Yeah. It was that Martin Scorsese production. Yep. I saw, I think I saw the beginning episode. I, didn't, I was not enamored by it. I'm just going to put it out there. I, I think HBO made the wrong choice. <laughs> well, here's the thing we have to start with. Did you see the movie that was done in 1976? With Robert De Niro, directed by Elliot Kazan. Excuse me, with excuse me, Robert De Niro, Tony Curtis, Jack Nicholson, Robert Mitchum. Yeah, did you ever did you ever go back and see it? I did not. So I think we should make it our blast from the past film for this week. I love that. Yeah. It was F. Scott Fitzgerald's last great novel. It is now the screen's most magnificent love story. Which I saw back in 1976, and it was so vague in my memory that I kept thinking, gosh, wasn't this movie already done? But here's what's strange. Okay, as I'm watching the first episode, I'm thinking, oh, this is so cool. She's going to love it. Wait till they see you on screen. Am I right? You're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to know the first thing that struck me about this series? What? I hit play, not without some trepidation, because Amazon did also bring us Z. By the way, you sounded in your text to me when you were telling me, please, you know, pick this up. I it was sort of like I could tell you weren't you weren't sold on it yet. Well, Amazon did bring us Z with Christina Ricci, which you liked right. better than I did. So I thought, right. okay, I'm going back to Amazon. I'm going back to F. Scott Fitzgerald, but the opening, which reminded me of Downton Abbey and the Spanish series Velvet, with the typewriter and the fashion designs and the scissors cutting, so you know they're backstage making a Hollywood production. I hear the period music because it's that golden era of Hollywood. I see the Art Deco font. And the first thing I noticed, honestly, it said cinematography by Daniel Motor. And I thought, where have I heard that name? I'm like, Daniel Motor. And then I was like, oh, Danny Motor. As in Julia Roberts' husband? Yes, Julia Roberts' husband did the cinematography. And I thought it was outstanding. And I had to look. I, I don't think I ever gave Danny Motor his proper do he's what's very hard when you leave your wife who was pregnant at the time for julia roberts (laughs) who you met on a set 
to have us really look at you with any serious love in our hearts. But go ahead. True enough. And yet, you know how the tabloids always referred him as cameraman? It almost made him sound like he was the one carrying the equipment around for the he real photographer. He was at that time. But when you're married to Julia Roberts, you get elevated immediately. Well, I got to tell you, I think deservedly so in this case because the cinematography was beautiful. The whole production, all the production values were just well, top-notch. Well, it's funny that you say that because... I decided, I don't know if I'm like aging well or what, but I decided that I can't binge watch this, that it's too important and it's too well done to be binged. Like you need to go through it slowly. But here's what what immediately struck me, which is right in your wheelhouse of what you're discussing, is that do you remember what I didn't like about the Woody Allen film where I felt like it was trying to pretend that it was from that era? It's so funny you bring up Cafe Society because yes. I thought about that too while watching this. Well, mm-hmm. so I'm watching this and I'm thinking, okay, Woody Allen needs to turn on his television. He needs to go to Amazon, which probably isn't even on his television, and he needs to watch this because this is how it should have been done. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's an attention to detail, but I also think that this cast of actors, who none of which I know, do you, you probably know them all, right? I love so many of them. <laughs> Rosemary DeWitt. Right, I mean, she right. was she played the Bohemian on Mad Men. A lot of the Mad Men team uh-huh. were brought into the making sense. of this production, yeah. which makes sense. Kelsey Grammer, Matt Bomer, Jennifer Beals, Sharon Lawrence, Lily Collins. I mean, it is just a stacked cast of fabulous actors with fabulous meaty roles to play such complex characters. And you know what else comes out about that is... As an actor, don't be overexposed because none of them bring their past cinema history to this piece. It's it's almost like I just recognize there are so many great, brilliant actors out there. And yet mm-hmm. when someone becomes like a Jennifer Lawrence, I think they become overused or they're overexposed. They're in the tabloids too often. And so what happens is when you then bring them into something, somehow in the back of our minds, we're still watching them in something they just finished. And... I think the one of the th- reasons I like this so much is Kelsey Grammer. I haven't seen him in years on the screen. He's a great actor, but he didn't bring anything he's done to it. It was him in this moment, in this piece. Don't you think? Well, Hollister, what you say is very true. And I was thinking about something you said previously on a prior podcast about where did all the great character actors go, mm-hmm. especially in America. And with someone like Kelsey Grammer, he's had an iconic yeah, role on, yeah. on TV playing yeah. Frasier, a sitcom. And here he stands shoulder to shoulder with all the great stage actors. He was a character actor. Jennifer Beals, iconic in the off-the-shoulder sweatshirt flash dance, and she's done a lot of television. Uh-huh. Rosemary DeWitt, you know, whatever part she plays, she is always so good. But kudos to the writers for giving each one such a strong character, all of whom are at cross purposes. Uh, you know, you can talk about who wrote this screenplay, but really, let's talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is really what you need to look at here. You know, what amazing writing set the foundation for them to be able to build off of, you know? yes and no. I know F. Scott Fitzgerald is often credited with writing one of the greatest American novels ever, The Great Gatsby. But I find it so ironic that he never really transitioned into becoming a successful Hollywood writer. It's completely different chops. Maybe he didn't want to. Well, he tried. I mean, he was in debt. And I do find that interesting that the plot of this story has so many parallels with F. Scott Fitzgerald's real life. It's a guy who is his age, 
ish working in Hollywood, trying to get out of debt, just as F. Scott Fitzgerald was, and here it's the studio. He has heart problems, and F. Scott Fitzgerald died of a heart attack at age 44, which is why he never finished this book. But mm-hmm. listen to this. This is the actual pitch that F. Scott Fitzgerald made trying to sell this story to a magazine editor. Okay, ready? This was back in 1939. I am so ready. Quote, It is an escape into a lavish romantic past that perhaps will not come again into our time. And you know one of the most interesting things about that pitch? The magazine turned him down. For me, it's about the contrast between the dream of Hollywood and the reality of Hollywood. But it's also about why that dream has such a powerful hold on us. I think these writers, Billy Ray and his team... Oh, they did a great job. They did a better job than the original novel. And I think they weren't as hamstrung because they didn't have to be true to a whole original, complete famous novel like adapting The Great Gatsby. Do you have a favorite uh, line? uh, I have so many. Okay, give me one and I'll (laughs) give you one and you can't pick mine. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to give you one. Rosemary DeWitt and Sharon Lawrence are at a bar. They're just getting sloshed. They've left the other studio wives at a table. And Rosemary DeWitt says to Sharon Lawrence, and Rosemary DeWitt plays the wife of the studio head, Kelsey Grammer, right? She says to her, we must love the lawns. (laughs) And Sharon Lawrence looks at her completely just befuddled, right? And Rosemary DeWitt says, we put up with the boredom, the cheating for what? Great big lawns must be enough. See, but that was F. Scott Fitzgerald's line. And it's is right that, out of the Is Gatsby. that in the book? Well, I don't know, but it's a Gatsby line. I, I don't know for sure. By the way, I'm making it up that I know that F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote that line. But if you think about how the Gatsby was written, I'm much more familiar with Gatsby than I am with this piece. But that's exactly the kind of line that would have come out of Gatsby. And kudos to these writers that they yeah. actually created a nine-episode arc that feels so Gatsby-esque. Okay, Hollister, give me one of your favorite lines. I've I've always, as you know, you and I talk personally, as you know, I've always wanted to get a tattoo, right? Always. I'm not sure of what, but okay. Well, I just want to have a tattoo. And my daughter has said to me, if I do, then she's never going to be my daughter again. So I haven't done it, although she probably wouldn't even notice if I did it. But anyway, so I want this line. I I want to tattoo this line. Ready? Okay. I like people and I like them to like me but I keep my heart where God put it on the inside. It's a great line. Oh, the best. I think that's one of the best lines that's, that comes on a screen. Give me a better one. Okay, here's one by the German director. They put it in the mouth of the German director, Fritz Lang. Okay. And he's just done something completely creepy. You know, the person calls him on it, a much younger person, and he says, basically, this is what's wrong with you Americans. He says... You Americans think people need to be good to be great. Oh, and his position fabulous. is you can do something creepy and achieve great things. But I think it's true. I think we do want our great people to also be good people. Well, uh, you know, I've often said that the problem with Americans is, you know, my age two, husband number two, was French. He was also Jewish. And he used to say to me, people never think of me as Jewish because Americans only think of people as one thing. And so because I, you know, I'm French, they think of me as French. It doesn't occur to them that I'm also Jewish. Like how you just thought of Sam Shepard as being an actor? Probably. Um, (sighs) Also because I'm clearly not well read. But anyway, but which is actually also true. But here's the thing. It's people, it's not, I don't think that they necessarily want them to be good as much as they want them to be one thing. 
So if you're great, of course you would be good because whatever you greatness you did was good. When the truth is, you can be, people are never one thing without having something on the other spectrum. In my well, personal opinion of people but you is know what? that if they do some great things, they also do some really bad things. And, you know, I just feel like we're very complex creatures. We, I'm people. not willing to believe that yet, though. And okay. I know this series keeps bringing that up, that everything comes at a cost, which yeah. was another great line that there is no art without commerce. Implying also there's no commerce without some deals that don't make you feel so great at the end of the night. You tell these beautiful stories. They're not all beautiful, are they? Do you have another favorite line? I didn't. I only pulled one because I I didn't want to be gluttonous in my line. (laughs) I know. So no, I don't. Well... But I wrote down one that I thought would appeal to you. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. Go ahead. Okay. You know, again, they're making some tough studio decisions, and people aren't always happy. And the guy turns around and says, see, there's no profit in the anger business. So why would that remind you of me? Because I think you're one of those people that says, you know, you can get angry, but it's not going to help the end product. No, I, I, you know, I you got to move yeah. well, on. I don't, and I, don't... I don't think anger translates in to action that will serve you. I think it Mm -hmm. translates into action that will break things apart. You're right. I do think that. And you know what, Hollister? I think you're a great person who's also a good person. Oh, thank you. But I'm not sure that's true. (laughs) Let me tell you, with the greatness that I have, trust me, there's another side and you know it. So we know that to be true. But okay, now the other thing is, the other thing I thought about with you, first of all, I'm going to savor this. I'm not going to binge it because it's almost like too rich to binge. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like a great dessert. You can really only have one, you know, bite of it. You know, a great creme brulee, I could never eat the whole thing, you know. Alistair, I know exactly what you mean, and yeah. yet we did a little Freaky Friday because I did watch the whole thing. Oh I was sure my God. you would, and so I did. I just Okay, mark play. this day. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Screen Thought listeners, mark this day, O'Toole binged. Oh, oh, oh my goodness. Me, you but know? it did have that effect where I felt like I could almost be in, in The Great Gatsby where I'm going to end up face down in a pool. Someone's going to find me, you yeah. know, in a heap. But you're absolutely right because... I compared this in terms of the opening sequence to Downton Abbey, you know, where you see the downstairs bells ringing and the gloves and then people have said many times that Hollywood stars are the closest America comes to having royals. Uh And it's that whole upstairs, downstairs dynamic Uh of you've got the studio execs, you've got the people working on the lot. I don't know if you made it this far, but the studio exec's wife even volunteers at a hospital, which is not unlike a Downton Abbey plot point. It addresses sexism, classism, racism, anti-Semitism, immigration. And like Downton Abbey, there's all this drama on the set But there's also the period drama of the world at large. So they mention Franco and Hitler, Mussolini, the Great Depression. You've got a shantytown next to the Hollywood lot. You even got socioeconomics with a chauffeur which was all very Downton Abbey-esque to me, along with the intrigue and the romance and who's wooing the boss's daughter. Please find another business. There is no other business. Well, the thing that really, really struck me is the sexism stuff. That was really helpful to me. It was so clearly defined, where you could see it in the scene. This is it. Very set in stone. 
Uh, whether it's him telling her, you know, she says, I have the very first episode, I have great ideas. And he says, go back to school. Like, you know, would not have done that if it was a guy. That part, that part was also like Lady Edith on Downton Abbey. Remember yeah. when she wants to go be a journalist yeah, and be a exactly writer that. and her family's The other thing it. I thought about when I'm watching it is, oh my God, O'Toole's going to love the costumes. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And I'm like, right. okay, try to be respectful of O'Toole's point of view and look at these costumes and ask yourself if it's worth watching for the costume. So then I had to rewind because I hadn't been listening to what was being said because I was trying to look at what they were wearing. And <laughs> so I had to go back and rewind and rewatch. And I will say that I think if I were a fashion designer today... I would go back and watch movies from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 40s, and 30s. I would design just from those because all of them have a place in today's fashion, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were great. And I really, I, I thought she's going to love the fashion. Absolutely going to love it. And the hair. And the hair. There was F. Scott Fitzgerald in 1939, already worried that there was a romantic past that would never be created again. But yeah, give me Matt Bomer. In a tuxedo with cufflinks, who has a thing for Irish women, any day of the week. I mean, the clothes were just spectacular. I will also say, though, that when you, you have to pair people against people. Okay, Kelsey Grammer versus Robert Mitchum. Looks expensive. Could be our Oscar, Pat. We don't need an Oscar. Yes, we do. Hmm. Okay, since you haven't seen it, you'd have to go watch it. And I do think we might have to revisit this in a future date. Robert Mitchum is a little bit better. Shh, shh, don't, don't tell anybody I'm telling you this. You know, Hollister, I am going to have to go check you out are, the 1970s version because, you know, it was written by Harold Pinter. He adapted the book for that mm-hmm. screenplay. But I heard that when it came out, it was a flop. The like, movie? Do you have an, yeah, do you know why people didn't go to it I, in I, I, I never paid attention back then to reviews, so I don't know. Okay, Matt Bomer versus Robert De Niro. I'm going to have to go with Matt Bomer. You're not a stand-in for anybody. Well, you haven't seen De Niro. You can't do that I if you know, haven't seen him. I mean, I've it's not fair. Matt... At least go watch the trailer before you I, make these decisions. I thought Matt Bomer was that good with his piercing blue eyes. He just... Wait, have you ever thought, wait, let's be fair. Have you ever found De Niro attractive? Yes, but not in that way. We'll have to rewrite the scene and reshoot it. It's absolute crap. Here's what's exciting about it. How amazing to be able to be compared to De Niro in an equal way or Robert Mitchum. You know, one of the great actors of his day was Robert Mitchum. You know, Matt Bomer, though, like, again, you made the comparison to the great Gatsby. I thought he was so Gatsby-esque. In yeah, this role. Yeah. And again, to me, I was thinking John Hamm in Mad Men. So I was not surprised when I realized the costumer, the executive producer, it was that Mad yeah. Men team no, that really knew how to bring back that look on a guy. You know, Matt Bomer, John Hamm, I thought they're very similar. And advertising in Hollywood are very similar. Both are about creating an image, demand selling a story to the public. Also similar issues in terms of changing their identity, polishing up their past, becoming reinvented, as were most of the characters there in L.A. Maybe a hundred times a day, I take someone to the edge of a roof and I say, don't worry, you can jump. There's water down there. Trust me. The one from 1976 was um, Harold Pinter was the writer for the screenplay. Yeah. 
who did the French Lieutenant's Woman. He also did... The Handmaid's Tale. That's right. Uh-huh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if, so if you think of The Handmaid's Tale, you can see exactly how he would have written this. And it's nowhere near as rich in dialogue. I don't usually uh, drink with the talent. I don't usually drink with the boss. The two screenplays were written very differently, in my opinion, by two very different screenwriters. So, and that makes a big difference. But when you have the acting acumen of these types of actors for both of these elements, you know, you, you just you just have to say, wow, this is pretty incredible. And I'm surprised they haven't done a remake earlier, especially because people love to watch movies about Hollywood, especially people from Hollywood. And, and you mentioned so, Cafe Society. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Z with Christina Ricci. And we can also mention Feud that we did a podcast yeah. about. It seems like this whole golden era of Hollywood yeah. is in vogue. But they love watching themselves, I'm telling you. And since they're in charge of what's going to be done, it's not surprising. We need to Margot Taft. I need a percentage. They put me out of business. I'm making our movie. With whose money? Kelsey Grammer with his stentorian voice and that complicated father-son relationship where he hates him, he loves him, he needs him, <laughs> he invented him. It's very watchable. Yeah, it's really, really good. Alistair, I cannot wait to discuss this with you some more because there is a plot twist that happens towards the end of episode six. I didn't see it coming. I saw maybe a little mini ripple version of it, but I didn't see the full throttle version. So kudos to the writers that they kept me guessing Mm -hmm. until the last episode. But I'm very curious as to your thoughts about whether or not there'll be a season two. I think it's set up beautifully to have one. Well, there you go. There have been six directors on the nine episodes, and four have been women. Uh. Two were men. One was the creator, Billy Ray, and the other was was Scott Hornbacher, again, for Mad Men. Huh. Yeah, I, it's very Mad Men-ish. I think I get that. Definitely. I can definitely see that. But I would give it, I would give it an A, but it's not a fun class, meaning it's not like... <gasps> Like some of what I watch is just so mindless that you can multitask around it, which is how I watch so many things. But, um, but this is not this, you need to give it its full attention and you need to pay attention because there's a lot of nuance to it in all aspects of it that really need to be seen. So you don't do it late at night when you're tired and you're going to nod off. You do it when you're focused and ready to watch. It's great, great, great show. Kudos to the whole team behind this production because even though it's set in 1936, it invokes so many themes that seem relevant today. Yeah. Or sadly, that's true. By the way, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a positive thing because would it be we had made a little more progress in some of these areas? I know, and yeah. yet even their mentions of Hitler and Germany at the time being the second largest foreign market, and Hollywood was kowtowing to the desires of Hitler. You know, you hear a lot of that discussion today with China and how some studio executives have been approached and been told you can't make the villain Chinese and they make the villain Russian. So a lot of contemporary themes. Can we move from the... Hollywood royalty back to England's royalty? Absolutely, Hollister. Take it away. Okay, I did watch the documentary that's out on HBO. It's called Diana, Our Mother, Her Life and Legacy. I can't believe it's been 20 years since her death. Yeah, it's been 20 years. Okay, the filmmakers are Nicholas Kent and Ashley Gething. What's interesting is they actually got William and Harry to talk with them 
And William and Harry, I'd say 80% of this documentary, it's all just over an hour, is William and Harry talking about their mom, and which is in itself very unusual. This is the first time that the two of us have ever spoken about her as a mother. She was very informal and really enjoyed laughter. So when the documentary came out just a few weeks ago and William did a showing at Kensington Palace, and here's what he said. Not only is this the first time we've spoken so openly and at length about our mother, it will also be the last time. Wow. I'm amazed the royal handlers let them have this interview. (laughs) Well, I I have to tell you, I don't think the handlers could have stopped them. I think these guys have finally stood up and said, we're going to say what we really think now. We're going to do what we really care about. And the rest of it be damned, because one of the things that, you know, Harry talks about is that it's not in the documentary, but because of the documentary, he did make the statement that when he walked behind the casket during his mother's funeral, he said he's watching millions of people crying and he hasn't even cried yet. The first time he cried about his mother's death was when they were burying her on the on the island at her childhood home. And he said he couldn't figure out why are people who didn't know her crying and I am not crying, you know. He was very confused and he didn't think any child should be asked to do that. And so he's already come out pretty strongly. They've come out strongly about how some of those things played out back then. And look, every mother in the world wishes to have a documentary done by their children that's this kind (laughs) because... Before they started working on the documentary, the filmmakers um, said that, you know, at first, William and Harry initially said they had so few memories of their mother that when they began the filmmaking pro- um, process, you know, they felt that they, they, they cautioned them and said, we don't remember our mother very much, which says, A, either she wasn't around very much, which one would think is probably true, or B, they just had totally submerged it all. But the key to unlocking the memories was these photo albums that they had never looked through together since her death that she put together. So you go through some of the photo albums with them, and she assembled them herself with pictures she took for each of her sons. She did one for each of them. And they had put the albums into storage a long time ago, presumably because you know, looking at the pages would be too painful. And then when they were planning this documentary, their way of paying homage to their mom um, was revisiting these albums with Kent and Gethling. She was one of the naughtiest parents, but she understood that there was a real life outside of palace walls. She was our mum. She still is our mum. You know, and of course, as a son, I would say that she's the best mum in the world. It's worth the watch. It definitely is, especially if you're a royal lover. So even if it is whitewashed, to show the very best of what she was, there's nothing in there that you can say is not true. And so good for them and good for her. And while I, you know, I worry about people who say never, I'm never speaking of this again publicly. If that's all they do say about her publicly, then they've done a really good job in laying a foundation of a woman who did a lot for, for humankind, you know, globally. She smothered us with love, that's for sure. I'm off to watch Baby Boom again. Oh, really? And then I'm going to watch the right stuff. Amazing work he's left behind.